this summer, my five-year-old daughter, her name's Faith, she participated in a week-long art camp. Now, she loves art, so this was really up her alley. The art camp's theme was bugs. So what they would do was they would go out into God's creation and study a particular insect and then go back into the art room and paint or craft something. On this particular day, the insect was butterflies. And they did their thing, observed butterflies, went back in and painted a ceramic butterfly. When I came home from work that day, after she had completed her craft, she runs up to me with this big smile on her face and says, Daddy, I decided to paint my butterfly yellow because I love you. See, my favorite color is yellow. I don't know if anybody else in here loves yellow as much as I do, but I always have. And my daughter knows this. And she wanted to dedicate to her daddy that yellow butterfly. So what did I do? I smiled a big smile. I grabbed her. I hugged her. I told her that I loved her. And then I went about my day. Unbeknownst to me, after that encounter... My daughter, Faith, went and found mom and said, Mommy, guess what? I made daddy smile. I made my daddy smile. Now, I didn't realize what a big deal that was until my wife called me the next day and told me. She said, Honey, you smiling, you showing that you were pleased with your daughter meant the world to her. And so I wrote down my wife's words about that instant. I wrote it on this, this sticky note right here. As soon as she said it, it says, it brings her, your daughter, the most joy to bring me, her daddy, joy. This is the way of a daughter. It brings her the most joy to bring me joy. This is the way of a daughter. Now, that's a powerful emotion to bring a parent joy, to make a dad or a mom smile, for them to display their affection, their approval of you. Experientially and theologically, this is true for Christians as well. We have this God-given desire to please our Heavenly Father. We want God to look down on us based on our, our actions, our lifestyle, and be approving of that. And it is equally powerful. It can often drive us. Now, Christians have wrestled with this drive for 2,000 years, we are confident that God loves us in Christ. We, we know this, we believe this, that in Christ we have God's favor. 
that that can't change. But still in our daily experiences, we wrestle with this drive, this desire of earning or being approved by our Heavenly Father. We want Him to smile upon us. And many of us feel that we have to do or not do something in order to earn that. And if we do or not do that thing, then rather than getting his smile, we get his frown and his scorn. Did I have my quiet time today with God? Did I pray through my whole prayer list? Have I been doing that consistently? When was the last time I, I shared the gospel? We lock ourselves into this performance prison. A performance prison. Where we feel that we have to continually strive in order to achieve God's standards for him to be favorable towards us, for him to love us or smile upon us. We often in this performance prison define the terms for God to be favorable towards us rather than letting God define those terms for us. So how do we move forward as Christians? How do we move forward closing this gap between our theology of belief, what we know to be true, what we believe to be true about God, how he views us, and what I call our operational theology, our theology of practice, the way in which we often find ourselves living out our relationship with God in this performance prison. Because we know the truth is that for those who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we are eternally blessed and highly favored by God. Eternally and forever. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and our faith in him. So today in this sermon, we are going to look at this question in our text. As God's children, how do we live out our desire to please our Heavenly Father? Because it's in there. We have a desire to live a Christ-centered life, to please him. But how do we exercise this God-given yearning? How do we work out our wish for God to smile on us? Our text is Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 12. And in this message... We're going to talk about the wrong way, it's backward, and we're going to talk about the right way, the forward-moving way, in order to live out our desire to please our Heavenly Father. So read with me chapter 5 of Galatians, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you 
that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So our first point is the wrong way. The wrong way. The wrong way is adding works of any kind to God's saving grace in Christ in order to win his approval. Don't add works to God's grace in Christ to win his approval. In Galatians 5, Paul was writing to a group of Gentile Christians. That's anyone who is not Jewish. And they had this same desire that we're, we're talking about. They, they wanted to please God. They wanted to live in a way that would make him view them with approval, where they would be in his favor. And the Galatian Christians were being pestered and pursued by these false teachers who were professing believers that happened to be Jewish, and they're called Judaizers. Now, Judaizers, they believed in Christ, or they said they did, and they taught these Gentile Christians that if you wanted to remain in God's favor, then you must submit to circumcision and all of the Mosaic Covenant in order to be united with Israel. So in essence, what they were saying is, Christ got you started, okay? That got you started. Now you need to submit to the Mosaic Covenant. You need to be circumcised. And then you'll be united with us, Israel. And Israel, it's within Israel that you will be secure in the favor of God. These Galatian Christians were inching closer and closer to succumbing to that type of theology, that type of wrong thinking. We know in chapter 4, just preceding our chapter, that they had already bought into the idea of adhering to the Jewish calendar. So they were keeping Sabbath and other, other holy days. And in chapter 5, we see that they're tiptoeing up to the line to submit all the way to unite with Israel 
through the Mosaic Covenant, which would be demonstrated by circumcision. Why should they not do this? The Mosaic Covenant's in the Bible. We're supposed to obey the Bible. What is, what is so wrong with this type of thinking? Well, Paul goes through and explains that for us. We're going to look at verses 2 through 4 and then 7 through 12. And in 2 through 4, we see the first reason is that adding works of any kind to the grace we have in Christ opposes that grace. It fights against that grace. Works and grace are mutually exclusive. In the context of earning God's favor, you can't have both. They don't cooperate. They repel each other. Grace, by its very definition, means you cannot earn it. It's something you receive. And so look with me beginning in verse 2, where we will see that Paul used very strong language, almost offensive language, to articulate this point that works oppose grace. In verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will be of no advantage to you. Works oppose God's grace in Christ. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You can't have both. Works fight against grace. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Grace and works do not mix when we are talking about remaining in the favor of our Heavenly Father. When we are discussing earning His smile, you cannot do both grace and works. You must choose. Now, I want to be clear about something. Paul in this passage is in no way talking about Christians losing their salvation. At first blush with the severity of Paul's word choice, it might seem he's in that ballpark, but he's not. He is simply describing for us this false theology that will poison the Christian experience. It will lock you into a performance prison. One in which you will continue to pay and pay and strive and strive and get nowhere. Listen to one, one commentator's summary of these verses. Quote, For Gentiles to revert to the prescriptions of the Jewish law as a necessary form of Christian lifestyle, it is in effect to make Christianity legalistic rather than 
Christ-centered. And so not to have Christ's guidance in one's life. Commitment to Christ and commitment to legal prescriptions for righteousness are mutually exclusive. Experientially, the one destroys the other. Experientially, the one destroys the other. Adding works to grace of any kind to try to earn God's love or remain in his favor produces the very opposite results that you, that I, strive for. Works spoil grace. And let me demonstrate that for you with this illustration. Let's say that a a loving father buys his teenage son, his responsible teenage son. We'll preface it with that. A full suspension mountain bike. I mean, this thing is sweet. And the dad says, son, here you go. Have fun, but be careful. Have fun, but be careful. All right, says the son, I can do this. And then out of nowhere comes the older, cranky cousin who says, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you really want to ensure that you're going to be safe, if you want to guarantee to do what your father just said, then we need to add training wheels to this puppy. That way you'll, you'll guarantee that you'll honor your, your father and be safe. Now, when you add training wheels to a full suspension mountain bike, you spoil the whole experience. It's been ruined. At the, at the cost of having fun, yes, you are now going to be safe. But if the teenage son would have just listened to the father, he could have had both. He could have had fun and been safe. The addition of works spoils grace in the Christian walk. The Gentile Christians of Galatia were adding the training wheels of the law in their walk with God. And it ruined the whole experience of growing in that grace, celebrating that grace that in Christ I am right with God. I'm secure in that relationship. I don't need to add anything. I just need to grow in my knowledge and love of my Father through that grace. This is why Paul used such strong language here in these verses. Christ will be of no advantage to you. You're obligated to obey the law. You're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. It's this battle that when we add to grace, we lose the experiential joy of that grace. We lose the opportunity to grow in that grace. It's, it's like the proverbial hamster wheel for the Christian experience. If we add works of any kind, obedience of any kind to God's grace that we have received and therefore are forever in his favor. The hamster runs forward faster and faster. That wheel is a spinning, but he's not making any ground. He's not making any headway. The same is true for us, brothers and sisters, when we add thinking now I will make God smile. When we do that, when that type of thinking comes in, we are just running on that wheel, spinning faster and faster, but making no ground. 
Here's another illustration for how works spoils God's grace when we're talking about remaining in his favor or attempting to earn his favor. Let's say my dad buys me a very nice shotgun, a Beretta shotgun. This thing is nice. And we go out, we hunt, we do some dove hunting, and we have a great time. We limit out. Yeah, that's awesome. And we're going back, we're riding in the pickup truck, and I just get this thought in my head. Man, my dad paid a lot of money for this shotgun, and I really don't deserve it. So I go home that day, and I think, I need to make sure my dad keeps loving me. I need to make sure I stay within his good graces, so to speak. I stay in his favor. How can I do that? I know. So the next day, I go to the bank. I withdraw the exact amount of cash that that shotgun cost him. I go to his office and I, I plop that money on his desk. Now, what do you think my dad would say? In my attempt to please him, to remain in his favor, to earn his smile, what would that do to him? It would hurt him. It would almost be repulsive. It would be a rejection of my dad's grace. The same is true for all of us Christians who think we can somehow pay God back for what he's done for us in Christ. The same is true for us who think that we can somehow secure or guarantee God's smile upon us because the desire is there for God to be pleased with us. But there is a wrong way to go about handling that desire. So today, what are some things that we as Christians do in this attempt? Regular church attendance, giving, prayer, fasting, service, evangelism, mission trips. The list is really endless for what we as Christians do, not in a response to God's grace, but in this reversed quest to earn his favor. And when we do this, we are locking ourselves into this performance prison that will never let you out. Because you've locked yourself in there with this false theology and it's captivated us. And its price is high. It is bondage. Bondage. So fasting, prayer, these things are good. Regular church attendance, membership, I would encourage that. Most of the things that we do in an attempt to earn God's favor are commanded in the Bible. It is a vital aspect of our Christian walk with God. The problem is we flip it. We think, I can get something out of this. I can somehow leverage this. I can somehow get my father to turn to me, to look at me and to smile approvingly because of my obedience, my self-sacrifice, my worship, you name it. So in these verses two through four, 
we see that Paul teaches us that grace and works are incompatible if handled out of order. But in verses 7 through 12, he makes the case even stronger. The, the other reason, the second reason why this is the wrong way, is Paul tells us clearly that those who peddle this type of theology, they're false teachers. They are not from God. They are tripping you up in your walk with your creator. So these Judaizers, they had earned a favored position somehow in this church. And Paul is now about to call them out. And he just unloads. So let's look at verses 7 through 8 and read with me those. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So these teachers, Paul, is clearly identifying as not from God. Now, if we were to go through this whole letter this morning, we would see in the first chapter or two, Paul makes it a strong case that I am from God as an apostle, and I have received my gospel message from Christ himself. These Judaizers, they're not from God. These are not the type of people you want to listen to. They are false. Continuing, beginning in verse 10 here. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's saying that there's going to be a judgment. This type of teaching does not bear the fruit you are seeking. It does not grow the church in the way you're desiring. There will be a penalty. And then look at verse 12 where we see Paul's strongest accusations against them. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In verse 12, Paul calls them agitators and he wishes that they would go all the way with this teaching of circumcision, just go all the way and emasculate themselves. Listen to the great New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce describe the scene here in verse 12. He says, If only those who are upsetting you would make a complete job of this cutting business, then we should have no more trouble from them. Paul wants this put behind them and he is taking them to task and he has that right as an apostle who received the gospel that we believe that we preach that we share that saves us from Christ himself this is the gospel now he's rightfully livid because the message of righteousness and that's what we're talking about is righteousness this message of right standing with god is being perverted it's being spoiled it's being poisoned and it does have consequences both for the false teachers and for those who follow this type of teaching unfortunately false teachers are not 
relegated simply to the book of Galatians. We have them today. We call it legalism. Any attempt to earn God's favor, any attempt to improve your standing with God as an adopted child sealed by the Spirit is legalism. And it doesn't matter if it's commanded in the Bible. It doesn't matter if it's baptism or communion or church membership, confession. These are all responses to God's grace. They are not means to earn favor with God. Now, legalism is present, and we are commanded by Paul in verse 9. He says, not commanded, it's, it's implicit. Verse 9 says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, what does he mean by that? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. As we take in teaching, whether it's good teaching from Paul or false teaching from these Judaizers, from these legalists, that teaching leavens the whole lump. And in this case, this false teaching would have an impact on the Galatian Christians. Therefore, we need to hold ourselves and our church accountable for who are we listening to? Is this true teaching? Is this right theology? And we need to quickly and decisively remove ourselves from that teaching or remove that teacher from our setting because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will happen. Now, that's not necessarily surprising for us today, but as I opened this message, I think what might or might not be surprising for many of us is that we often are our own worst influencers in terms of false theology, false belief. Not because we're taking it in from the outside, but because we're fallen, because we're, we're still struggling with the flesh, this inward bent, this self-centeredness where we think somehow we can do something or not do something for God to love us more. It's there, it's present, it's in us, and it is something we will struggle with. We will battle until Christ calls us home, home or returns for us. And so in our daily experience, we sadly often doubt this truth that God's claimed you. He's put his spirit in you. He's washed you clean. He's firmly planted you in his family. He's given you an inheritance. You are forever his. And we, we know this to be true. We believe this to be true. But in our walk with God, we just struggle. I can't seem to do what I know God wants me to do. I just keep struggling with that one particular sin. I just keep striving and I just worry that God's disappointed in me that he just won't smile upon me, that he just, he'll turn his back on me. He'll set me outside of his family. And so we strive. So we suffer in that performance prison 
Now, this is oftentimes called an orphan's mentality. An orphan's mentality that I'm just not good enough, therefore God can't love me. I'm, I'm just not obedient enough, lovely enough, whatever. God can't love me. I have to do something. It's an orphan's mentality. We who have trusted in Christ, we are not orphans. We are beloved. We have a home. We have a forever family. We will never be forsaken. We will never be cast out. We are secure in the love and favor of our heavenly Father. We have his smile. We have it. Now going back to my, my sticky note here. Do you want to know why I wrote this down? And I did as soon as my wife called me and told me that I made my daughter smile and that it, it just brought something to her heart that I was unaware of. I wrote it down. And the reason I wrote this down, that it brings her the most joy to bring me joy, this is the way of a daughter, is not because I thought it was cute. It terrified me. It sobered me immediately because I realized in that moment that my daughter had to know that no matter what, I loved her. That she could not earn my love, she could not lose my love. That it was there from the moment she was conceived and it'll be there until I am long gone. I love her. She's mine. And she must know that. She must know that. And if she doesn't, if she somehow gets in her head that I've got to make daddy pleased with me, I've got to make him smile, there will be sad consequences for her internally, emotionally, and there will be sad consequences in our relationship as well. She, as well as us, as Christians who have a heavenly father, we must know and believe that we are in God's love, that it has been poured out into our hearts through the giving of the Holy Spirit. In our, in our book here, in our passage of Galatians 1, Paul makes this case also. He explains to us these sad consequences, consequences that we've been talking about. But he makes it explicitly clear in verse 1, for those who reject this freedom, this freedom we have in Christ. In verse 1, the very last phrase of verse 1, he says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 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 He tells us not to burden ourselves in the context of this passage with the law, the Mosaic Covenant. It's slavery. But the implications of what Paul is teaching them in regards to the Mosaic Covenant to earn God's favor are true for us today in the sense that any religious system or Christian practice any steps that you might implement to earn God's favor is slavery. It's that performance prison. It's that hamster wheel where you are running 
faster and faster and making no headway. Now, it's slavery for all these reasons that I have shared with you, but just logically, think about it this way. How can a finite, needy, sinful creature, us, how can we do anything to earn the favor of an infinite, holy creator? It's impossible. It is absolutely unachievable. All that we as sinful, finite creatures who are so needy, all that we have, we've received. God gives us and we receive it. That's our role. We're recipients of his great grace, a grace that has saved us and a grace that is saving us, a grace that has united us with Christ and a grace that is making us more like Christ and a grace that will have its effect until the end when we are with him forever and we are like Christ. It is this grace that we have received by faith in Christ. So up to this point, I've, I've clearly, hopefully, clearly explained to you Paul's argument here, why it's the wrong way. It, it poisons it, it opposes it, it spoils it, it rejects it. All these things, works done in this way, do that to grace. And Paul just flat out says, these are bad guys. This is a bad theology. Don't buy into it. They'll be judged and the church will be negatively impacted. So that's what we've discussed. All, all the, the negative aspects of this passage. Basically what not to do and why not to do it. But what do we do with this desire that we have that's in us, that's alive? The Spirit prompts us to, to walk with Him, to, strives the wrong word, to, to choose wisely to obey the Word. What do we do with this? How do, I, how do I handle this, knowing that I'm secure in Christ, that I'm loved, but I have these desires to please my Father? What's the right way? The command, Paul's imperative his leading imperative in this passage is in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm. The right way for us, Christians who've trusted in Christ, in handling these desires to make God smile upon us is to stand firm in the freedom we have in Christ. And it's for freedom that we've been set free. Don't miss that fact. The imperative is to stand firm in that freedom, meaning don't add anything to it. Your guilt's been washed away. You're securely in my family. You've been set free from that performance prison You've been set free from that striving, whether it's a system to make God love you more. You're free from that. Stand firm in that. But this freedom, ladies and gentlemen, is breathtaking. 
It is beautiful and it, it has very positive consequences if we can stand firm in that freedom. So what's the content of this freedom? Paul tells us in verses 5 through 6. He actually lays it out for us and it is beautiful. Read with me verses 5 through 6. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the heart of the issue for Paul is, where does this righteousness come from that all people are craving and seeking? This right standing before our holy God. He tells us, righteousness is received from God. It is received from God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. After a person places their faith in Christ Jesus, it is not earned. It is received. And no amount of law keeping can change that. So how do, how do we do this? How do we stand firm? Instead of continually striving, you need to preach to yourselves. We need to preach to ourselves the truth of this freedom. That all that we need, we've received. The Spirit. Christ. God's righteousness. It's all there in verses 5 and 6. That which the human heart craves is received from God's hand. And it's in that freedom that we experience the blessing of that. Now this, this freedom is something that propels us forward. I knew that word would come out. It propels us forward. Now what do I mean by that? A.W. Tozer, the the great pastor and theologian is quoted as saying this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to, into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When we think about God, are we thinking of a taskmaster that I must strive for to earn his approval? Or are we thinking about a loving heavenly father who has set us free Set us free from guilt and shame and striving that we might know and enjoy him. Now, depending upon how you view God, it does impact your walk with him. I'm still talking to Christians this morning. When you think of God as a liberator, someone who has firmly planted you in this freedom where you have the spirit, you have righteousness, you have Christ the Messiah, it impacts your relationships, both with God and with others. Now, I'm going to provide an illustration for you in regards to my marriage with my wife. I love my wife. We have a healthy marriage. Is it perfect? No. So the metaphor, the illustration will only go so far. But when we got married, we made a vow before God and to each other that we were going to base our marriage on our mutual faith in the faithfulness of Christ our trust in the faithfulness of Christ, that as we pursue Christ, Christ's faithfulness, his love, his care, 
that will be enough for our marriage. That will secure our marriage. And as a tagline onto that, we said divorce is not an option. It's, it doesn't exist. We ripped it out of the dictionary. It's not on the table. Now, what happened after the vow of our faith in Christ's faithfulness is supreme, divorce is not an option, what happened was, was quite surprising. It was more than just this intellectual exercise. It was more than just this rehearsed vow. We experienced freedom. We were set free to simply be ourselves before one another, to be open with our struggles, honest with our doubts, our fears, to love one another based on our own personalities, and to be willing to hear from the other, what do you need? We were set free because we knew it was not dependent on us to secure the marriage. There was no more striving. I didn't need to daily check my wife's pulse or daily make her smile in order for my marriage to be secure, in order to know I'm loved by her. We were free. Faith in Christ's faithfulness will set you free. And Paul tells us that here. He tells us that when we stand firm in the faithfulness of Christ, that freedom, that what Christ has done for you is in fact freedom, when we believe that, when we live according to that, we as Christians experience the same fruit of love. There's no more striving. You don't need to strive for God to love you. You're now free to enjoy his love. Likewise, you're also free to love others. You no longer need to use your relationships to prop yourself up. You're free. You're free to love others. You're free to serve others without any kind of hook. You don't need others. Why? You've got the Father's smile. It's everything the human heart desires. We as Christians have the Father's smile. We are free to enjoy that love. We are free to love, to serve others without any expectation because we have all that we need. We have all that we crave. It's in that freedom that we are free to love, to be loved, to know God, to experience our relationship with him, to be vulnerable before others. We are free. Stand firm in that freedom. It is beautiful. Now, if you're here with us this morning and you have not trusted in Christ and this freedom is what you're searching for, then I urge you to go before God in prayer. Tell him that you are trusting in his son for the forgiveness of your sins, to wash you clean of the guilt so that you might be his child, set free in his grace. And if you're a believer, as a church, as a local body, may we stand firm together in that freedom, resisting the pull to add anything to what God has done for us in Christ. It is for freedom we have been set free. Stand firm in that. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word, its truth. Thank you that we have no more striving for those who've trusted in your son. What freedom you have given us, may we stand firm in it. May we delight in you. And may we love you in response to your love for us. May we serve others in that love. Lord, thank you for the letter to the church of Galatia. Thank you for how it is so relevant for us today. We pray as we go forth from here that we would walk with you in the freedom you've secured through your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.